taking a deep breath after last night and uh, collecting ourselves. So glad that you chose to come and worship with us today and that we're not all frowny-faced, right? As I was thinking last night about 11.55, this is going to be a sour Sunday morning. But in any case, it worked out. Um, I, this morning, I want to just do, share with you a kind of a one-off sermon. It's one that I have shared with you before. Um, over the history of me being here at the church, I've probably preached some of this text or part of this text, uh, I don't know, three or four times or so. Um, and so this morning, I just wanted to take an opportunity to share along these lines. We're going to start a new series next Sunday on the book of Job. Um, which is a delightful book of the Bible. Um, so, but we'll, we'll, we'll make it, uh, we'll smile our way through it and, uh, and learn from what the scriptures um, have to share there in the book of Job. So I look forward to sharing some of that with you. Um, today I want to talk specifically about the subject of maturity um, and how the Bible defines maturity. What, what is maturity from a biblical perspective? And then uh, what does it look, you know, so that I know what I'm aiming for, because for a lot of us, um, just in the church, this church, church in general, we think that Jesus came to die on the cross to save us from our sins, and then well, what more is there, right? Just waiting till I go on to glory. Um, but there's actually, between the time of us giving our life to Jesus and the time that we go to glory, there should be this upward path toward maturity, toward Christ-likeness. And so I just want to kind of define that subject matter today. We'll dive into some of what John Wesley has to say on the subject matter. We'll use some of his terminology. I'll throw some theological words and concepts at you to help us um, understand this and wrap our heads around it. Our scripture text today is two. It comes from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, part of the Sermon on the Mount, and then Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, uh, which I don't have already pulled up, so let's go ahead and read it together. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So, uh, again, I, I want to share with you that we'll start with some of these theological terms that uh, John Wesley provides. Because his, you know, Wesley, lots of times when he's getting talked about in theological circles, it's this concept of can you lose your salvation? Well, that was not Wesley's distinctive theology at all. Wesley's distinctive theology was this uh, push toward per, a life of personal piety, toward a life of personal holiness. He was trying to encourage people down the path toward maturity in Christ, toward Christ likeness. And so that's really one of our focus today. And so he, he has three terms. Um, the first of those is um, entire sanctification. Uh, and these terms he, can, he uses interchangeably. So when he uses the word entire sanctification, sometimes he also uses the term Christian perfection. Sometimes he uses the terminology of perfection of love. And all these three terms can be used interchangeably. When he refers to one, he's referring to the others, to the same concept. So what is entire sanctification or Christian perfection or perfection of love? What does John Wesley mean by that? Well, entire sanctification is a theological concept about the heights of Christian maturity. That's what it is. So when you hear the term entire sanctification spoken of in Wesleyan circles or in John Wesley circles, we're talking about the heights of Christian maturity. He's trying to identify what the pinnacle, what the aim is, what the goal is of Christian maturity. Wesley was trying to create a category of terminology that captures or emphasizes the heights of Christian maturity. He was concerned 
that too often folks enter the doors of the church. They know that they, have, they recognize they have a need for forgiveness of sins. They turn to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins. And then they walk back out the door and they continue stumbling. They continue to fall. They continue to sin. And so Wesley wanted to breathe some hope into that revolving door experience. Wesley wanted to, folks to know that there is a power from God, a grace of God that is available that can enable the believer to live a victorious Christian life. And by victorious Christian life, I want to just be clear on what Wesley meant by this. When he talks about victorious Christian life, he means victory over sin. That is what he had in mind. Um, Wesley would not accept that Christians are doomed to be slaves of the flesh. Rather, Wesley taught that victory over the flesh can be obtained in this life, that the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead also has the power to enable us to go and sin no more. Wesley would argue, why would Jesus tell the woman who was caught in adultery to go and sin no more if he thought it was impossible for her to do so? Wesley would argue from, from Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, why would Jesus tell us, invite us, have set an expectation, raise the bar so high as to say, be perfect if he thought that it was impossible for us to do that. Now, I know that raises some questions, perhaps some skepticism, uh, perhaps some doubts, and you would be in very good company uh, if you have some questions about this, if you're not so sure about this. I mean, the thought of living free of sin, is that even possible? Uh, if it is, we say, I would like to meet the man, or I would like to meet the woman, right? But when we go back to Wesley's question, why would Jesus invite us to live this way if he did not think it was possible? Put another way, if the, if the power of God is, uh, is omnipotent, then is, and this power is working itself in and through our lives, then is this the one area where the power of God is not omnipotent to help us to overcome and to live free of sin in our lives? Those are the questions that Wesley was wrestling with. I've got a diagram for you here. It kind of shows a chart of somebody who is a believer and their progress toward glory. And so you can see that there. Uh, this will help us refine some of Wesley's thoughts on the matter. This diagram demonstrates the process of maturity that a follower of Christ goes through. The person is born into the world. Um, at some point, they realize their need for forgiveness of sins, and they turn to Jesus. In the Bible, Paul calls this event justification. Justification is the instantaneous instantaneous work of God in the life of a sinner. So this is somebody who recognizes they have a need for Jesus in their life. They repent of their sins. And so in that instant, they are justified before God. They are made righteous in God's sight. They're covered by the blood of Jesus. They need not be fearful to be in God's presence. They are justified in his sight. Um, that is justification, an instantaneous work of grace. But that's just the beginning, friends. You see that on the chart. That's just the beginning of the Christian life. That's just the beginning of the Christian experience. That is the starting point, justification. What follows should be the molding of that person into the image of Christ, into Christ-likeness, where the old habits and the old person that we used to be back before we came to know Jesus becomes less and less appealing to us and less and less a part of who we are. This process of becoming a new person in Christ is what the Bible refers to as sanctification. Now, I know that's kind of a, a, a $100 word. I don't know what you call that. I don't know. I'm not, not good on those kinds of things. Um, but anyhow, it's an expensive word, right? It's a theological word, and it does appear in your Bible, uh, sanctification. And when you hear th sanctification, you might just write in the, in the margin next to that process. 
Because the word sanctification means process. It's referring to this process of maturity that the believer is going through on their way to becoming more and more like Christ. Again, justification is the instantaneous work of grace. It happens in a single moment. Sanctification is the continual work of God's grace in our lives, maturing us, refining us to be more like Jesus. Now, most of the theologians of Wesley's day contend that ultimate maturity, becoming Christ-like, was something that happens at death. It was something that happens at glorification. That when the believer leaves this body of death, their natural bent towards sin is then finally and ultimately eradicated, and the potential for sin even is eliminated as well. But here's where Wesley diverges. He reasoned that a person can live free of sin in this life, that a person does not need to be driven this way and that way by the leading of the flesh, that a Christian need not be captive to their sinful nature. See, he's saying something different here than perhaps what other theologians have taught. Then their sinful nature can be silenced, he would say, temporarily, even for long periods of time. Paul writes these words in Galatians 5 and verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Wesley took Paul's words quite literally, that we could come to a place of such intimacy and close connection with God that our every motive and thought would be held captive by the Holy Spirit of God. That instead of having instincts for selfishness, instead of being driven by instincts for pride, of pride and instincts for the cares of this world, that those cares and those motives that are on the inside of each and every one of us could be changed, that we would become singly focused on loving God and loving other people. This is from Wesley's own words himself. Wesley says this, um, and I quote, what is Christian perfection? This was from about 1759. He used to have these conferences of, 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 of ministers every year. They have kind of an annual conference of pastors uh, that were underneath of his leadership. And so they would meet each year to kind of refine some of the theology that Wesley was, uh, was thinking and thinking about. And so he writes this in 1959. What is Christian perfection? The loving God, his answer, the loving of God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This implies that there is no wrong temper. And by temper, he doesn't mean that, you know, i got an anger issue. He's talking about literally our temperament, like the, the, the person that we are that when people engage us, our temperament. None contrary to love remains in the soul, and that the, all the thoughts, words, and actions, that's the total person, all thoughts, words, and actions uh, are governed by pure love. So Wesley is saying that at the height of Christian maturity, there is a fundamental change on the inside of a person. That this is not about following rules. That would be Pharisaism. That this is not about religious, hyper-religiousness. Uh, that would be works righteousness. Rather, that this is about the complete death of the inner sinful nature in a moment-by-moment, step-in-step-with-the-spirit-of-God kind of existence. Where the old person that we used to be the old person that we used to be, finally dies. Now, for all of us, that's going to take place at glorification, but Wesley posited that, hey, look, it can actually take place in this life. The question then for us is, does Scripture bear this out? Or is Wesley just pontificating? <laughs> so that's where we want to go, to go now. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. You can follow along with me on the screen. We're just going to take a journey through Paul's letter to the, to the Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, 
Um, and in the first two chapters, we're just going to kind of walk through these verses together, select verses. So here we go. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. Our question again is, Wesley's theory, Wesley's, his ideas here of entire sanctification, does scripture, where, where do you get that from? Is that actually a biblical concept? So let's take a look. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle. Now, an apostle is somebody who has seen the resurrected Jesus and has been called by the resurrected Jesus into a full-time Christian ministry, like being in a missionary, being an evangelist, being a pastor, something along those sorts of lines. And so the apostle Paul says, hey, look, I have that title, which should tell us right out of the gate, if this is Paul's having to throw his titles out there for people to know, it should tell us that Paul has a credibility issue with his audience in Galatia. So something has happened. Some people have come behind the Apostle Paul since he had been there last, since he had planted this church and shared about Jesus. And they begin to uh, attack. They've kind of done what Aristotle would teach them to do, to attack his character rather than attack his message. Uh, so rather than deal with Paul's message, they attacked his character. And so that's what we have going on here. So as he says, Paul, an apostle, he's reminding them that, hey, look, Jesus called me into ministry. That should give some weight to what I'm about ready to share. He says, Paul, an apostle, not, not sent, from, sent not from men nor by man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So again, I'm not on some sort of human agenda. I'm not here trying to uh, carve out a name for myself. I'm not trying to make a name for myself, but rather I've been sent by God himself. That's why I'm here. Again, some of the people that had come in behind Paul were probably telling the local Galatian Christians that Paul was just really in it for himself. He was just going traveling around trying to make a name for himself and, and line his own pockets. Paul says, that's not why I'm here. All right, skip forward to verse 6, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, I am astonished. Now, if you were to tell one of your children, I'm astonished, what's coming next is probably not good news, right? So, so right here at the opening lines of the letter, Paul says, I am astonished at you. Well, what are you so upset about, Paul? What's got your dander up? Well, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I mean, he's basically saying that these folks have heard the good news about Jesus, they've responded to the good news about Jesus, but then some folks who teach a different message than what Paul taught, that are cult worshipers, if you would, have come in and have twisted that and have changed it and altered it such that the Galatians find themselves pursuing what these folks are teaching rather than the true orthodox message that Paul had shared. So he's astonished at this, he's upset about this. Look at verse 7. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Skip to verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? So we're back to this credibility issue that Paul's got with the local Galatians. Um, am I tr trying to make a name for myself? Am I here on, on my own behalf? Or am I trying to make a name for God? Am I here for his glory? Is that why I'm here? He continues in verse 10. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, I wouldn't be out getting flogged. I wouldn't be out having people throw stones at me. I wouldn't be out having all these terrible things, getting thrown in jail and these terrible things happening to me. Why would I do that if I was trying to make a name for myself? Why would I be going through all this suffering uh, if, if, if I was doing this for my own good? Um, verse 11. So what Paul's about ready to do, I don't know that I actually had y'all read verse 11. We'll, we'll, we'll skip verse 11. Don't worry about that. Um, so what he's getting ready to do when we get to verse 13 is he's, because he's got a credibility issue here with the Galatian Christians, because he's got a little credibility issue, he's going to share his personal autobiography. He's going to begin walking them through his own journey with Christ and take them to where he is today. And so that's what we're going to see here in just a few moments. So let's start at verse 13. 
He says, for you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism. Remember, he's been to this church before. He's led these people to Christ. He's taught them the scriptures. And so he says, you've heard about this. And so he's just going to give them the highlights of, of his own story. Because they, they know the details of the story. He says, verse 13, For you have heard of my former way of life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So this is before Paul has his Damascus Road experience. This is before the Apostle Paul is justified. This is Paul back when he was a Jew, and he was zealous for the law. He goes on to say that in verse 14. He says, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of the, beyond, uh, I can't even read it. All right, so I need to get glasses, right? And I was, maybe that'd be my 2023 thing. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So Paul's saying here, hey, look, amongst uh, the other Jewish little boys, amongst the other Jewish students uh, in school, I was the cream of the crop. I mean, I was the guy that other people identified and say, hey, look, he may be a high priest one day. Uh, this guy is just, he's just got great acumen. I mean, he, he knows the scriptures. He studies the scriptures. I mean, everybody else was going to sleep at night. Paul had, had his candle burning into the night, and he was studying. Everybody else was still waking up in the morning. Paul was already up, and he had his candle burning, and he was studying all through the morning and all through the day. Paul was an extremely zealous student. He was zealous for the law. And he says, you all have heard about this. You know what kind of a guy he was. In fact, Paul was a student of one of the great rabbis of Paul's day, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel only took on about three students at a time, and Gamaliel is the great teacher, right? This is like going to Harvard. This is like going to Yale. This is like going to Princeton. And so he was the cream of the crop at those kind of a schools. He was the student, one of three students, under this guy named Gamaliel. Again, he was the cream of the crop. Um, and he says, you all have heard about that. You know about that. Verse 15. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now, when did Jesus reveal himself to the apostle Paul? Well, this was on the road to, to Damascus. I think I got a map for you here. We have a map. That's coming up. He'll find it. Yeah, there we go. All right. Uh, so this is a map, and this shows, you can see Jerusalem down there in the southern part of this map in Israel, um, just kind of west of the Dead Sea. Um, and then you travel this road up to Damascus, up in the northern territory, up, up above um, Israel. It's kind of a, a, a launching point before you get out into the Arabian Desert, or, or you kind of travel along the Arabian Desert. But the Apostle Paul says, I was on my way from Jerusalem to Damascus. Um, and he was going up there to go persecute more Christians. So he had found Christians like Stephen. He had led people to stone him to death. He had thrown other Christians in jail. He'd kind of gotten all the Christians in Jerusalem that he could find. And he heard that some of the Christians had fled to, to Damascus and to try and escape Paul and his wrath and people like Paul. And so Paul was on his way up to Damascus to go persecute more Christians, to go throw more Christians in jail. And so while he's on his way up there to Damascus, he has this blinding light road of this this experience where he sees this blinding light from heaven he says who are you lord i knocks him off his horse and then the voice responds i'm the one whom you're persecuting it was the lord jesus that was speaking to paul and telling him hey paul look you've got uh you got it all wrong and so in this moment paul has kind of a crisis um he realizes he's been he thought he was a bulldog all of his life right because that's that's the only way to be and so he's he bulldog all of his life, and he finds out in a moment on this road to Damascus that he has been playing for the Alabama Crimson Tide. <laughs> Boy, you talk about a devastating day. Um, been throwing passes, been, been running the ball, been tackling people, um, and just taking it to him. And so this is devastating for the Apostle Paul. And so he goes on, I'm just telling the story from Acts, he goes on to Damascus, and he goes to the house of this 
uh, a friend of his that he was planning on staying with. He goes to the house on Straight Street. He goes up into the second floor of the house, and for three days, he says in Acts, that he just stayed up there. He wouldn't have any food, wouldn't receive any gas, wouldn't take any water. And people, by, you know, you, you don't take any water for three days, and you know, you're starting to hallucinate, and things are starting to go sour for you. And so people were knocking on the door saying, Paul, you know, you really need something to drink. Paul, what's going on? Paul, what, what's happened to you? And he's blinded uh, by, by what's happened on the road to Damascus as well. And so he just won't take any visitors. He's completely devastated. He's devastated. He's been playing for that other horrible team, right? And because and, and, because he knows where his heart is, um, and he starts. What, what, he does what any of us would do in a situation like that. You know, God, I am so sorry that I have been playing for the wrong team all this time. I, I thought I was. I thought I was seeking your glory, God. Instead, I was working for the devil. Um, and so. Paul says to God, what any of us would say in that situation, God, I know I have made a complete and total mess of my life. Stood there while Stephen was stoned to death. I've separated husbands and wives, made orphans out of their children, threw people in jail. I know I have been a complete and utter disaster. But if you can use me, I will give you the rest of my days. And God, in his mercy, sends a fellow by, I believe it's Ananias, and he comes, and the scales fall from Paul's eyes. And then he tells us where he goes next. He says here in verse, uh, where are we at? Verse 15, 16, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So if you go back to our map really quickly, you can see there that he went up to Damascus. And, uh, and he has these couple of days there at this house on Straight Street. Uh, the Lord Jesus shows mercy on him. The, the scales fall from his eyes. He says, I went out into the deserts of Arabia. Arabia is not a place where you go to live. Arabia is a place where you go to die. And I imagine Paul was still feeling that devastated. But while he's out there, the Lord Jesus, again, in his mercy, allows Paul to survive. He returns from Arabia back to Damascus. And he, the Bible tells us there in verse, uh, verse 18, if you skip to verse 18, he says, then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter. So he spent three years in Damascus, just searching the scriptures, looking at the Old Testament, seeing how Jesus is the fulfillment of that tabernacle, how there's only one way to get to where God is. He's realizing that Jesus is the story of Abraham and his son Isaac, and how Isaac was the one and only son, and carried him up to that, that mountaintop uh, at a little town called Jerusalem, or called Salem back then, later to be called Jerusalem, and how he would go to sacrifice his one and only son, and how God cried out, the angel of the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. Anytime you read that term, the angel of the Lord cried out, angel's just messenger, don't get tripped up on that. And Jesus cried out, stop, don't kill your son, that's my place. And Paul's realizing how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything he had been studying all of those years late at night, early in the morning. So he goes back to Damascus. He spends three years putting all these pieces together. And then he wants to go down to Jerusalem to greet Peter, the head of the church, um, and those who are other pillars of the church, to let them know, I'm, I've got it figured out now. I've got the right jersey on. I'm on your team. I'm playing for you guys. I'm all in. And so that's what he does there in verse 18. It says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So he's only in Jerusalem 
uh, for 15 days. I think I've got another slide here for you, and this kind of shows some of Paul's own personal journey, his spiritual autobiography. So we see there on this, on this slide how he's born into the world, and then he's born again or justified on that road to Damascus experience as his conversion experience. And then three years go by while he's in Damascus, and he goes to Jerusalem for the first time to visit Peter, to visit the, the pillars of the church, to say, hey, look, again, I'm on y'all's side. I'm working for the Lord Jesus. And this was, again, after three years that he goes this first time. All right, go to verse, uh, I think verse 19. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Um, and then verse 23, they, were, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us, referring to Paul, uh, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God, verse 24, because of me. All right, so that's kind of the end of that part of Paul's life. But now Paul's going to start uh, participating in, in more ministry and more missionary journeys. Those sorts of things go on. Then we start, he picks up in chapter 2 and verse 1 in his story. Then after 14 years, so 14 years, so from, he goes to Jerusalem this first time just to meet and greet. I mean, this is, the, this is the point where Barnabas shows up and Barnabas throws his arm around the Apostle Paul, says, hey, look, I, I, this guy's rough around the edges, Peter. You don't have to be scared of him. Um, I'll work with him. And so he, Barnabas takes Paul under his wing, takes him up to this church in Antioch, which I'll get to in just a little bit, takes him up to this church in Antioch. Paul becomes one of five associate pastors at this church in Antioch of Syria, a couple on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. He says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. So he goes to Jerusalem a second time. He says, this time with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me as well. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation. Now, Paul doesn't say here to us yet what that revelation is. He's going to give it to us here just a little bit later in chapter 2. Um, but just hang on to that for a second. He says, but I went up in response to a revelation. So he goes to Jerusalem a second time. Let's go back to that little slide where we see all of the progress of the Apostle Paul. So we've got three years that take place between his conversion, his justification, and him going to Jerusalem the first time. Fourteen years later, he goes up to Jerusalem a second time. This time he goes in response to this revelation that he's had from God. Revelation is special knowledge that God gives you. It's not just some fanciful thought that you, you acquired, but rather it is something that God gave you, a word of God, uh, some truth that he wanted you to know. We call that a revelation. So he says he goes in response to this revelation. Um, skip on down to verse 9. While he's there the second time, he says, And when James and Cephas and John, James the Lord's brother, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, the, the, uh, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, that is to the Jewish people. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Again, he goes in response the second time to Jerusalem because he got this revelation from God, which he's going to share with us here in just a little bit. Um, but uh, while he's there, they say, hey, look, you, you clearly God has given you grace to go and share the gospel, to be a missionary to Gentile people, to non-Jewish people. And we, Peter, I feel called to be a minister to a missionary to the Jewish people. And so that's what he does. Um, skip forward to verse 11, Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. All right, so now we're after his second visit to Jerusalem, sometime after. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I think I've got a map for you here that shows Antioch. Um, Antioch is, again, on the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea up there. In, in, um, it's in an area called Syria. Um, there's two Antiochs in the Bible map. There's one in Antioch of Pisidia. That's kind of in the, in the belly of modern-day Turkey. Uh, but then this is Antioch of Syria, so don't get those two confused when you read that. This is, this is the place where Barnabas was the senior pastor. And this was a church that had both Gentiles and Jewish people worshiping in it together. 
they had come to realize that, hey, look, uh, Jesus is for Gentile people as well. And all these, all these laws and Jewish customs and stuff, Jesus fulfilled that, so we don't need to continue to, to practice the ceremonial law. But again, some of the Jewish people felt just out of their conscience that they needed to, and so they would, but they didn't push that on the Gentile people. But when Cephas comes there, when Peter comes to Antioch, to this church where both Gentiles and Jewish people are, are meeting together, Barnabas is the senior pastor, Paul's the associate pastor, I opposed him, Peter, to his face. Peter's, you know, we've gotten to know Peter, right, last year. He's a pretty strong-willed guy, walks into the room mouth first. He, he grew up um, a little bit over the years um, and became a little bit more wise, a little bit more reserved, a little bit more uh, guarded with his words. Um, but on this occasion, uh, Paul thinks Peter's done something wrong. And so he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So whatever it was that Peter was saying, whatever it was that Peter was teaching, Paul felt like it was contrary to this. And so he opposed him to his face on that account. Verse 2, verse 12. For before certain men came from James, the certain men that he's referring to here, we'll learn here in just a second, were these people, I might call them Judaizers. They were Jewish people, some of whom had put their faith in Christ, perhaps some who not. But they were being sent to go inspect this church up in Antioch where Jews and Gentiles were both worshiping together. Are those Gentiles following the Jewish customs or not? That's what they wanted to see. And if they're not, then they're going to go back home with a bad report to Jerusalem, and the persecution is going to get even worse for the Christians back home. And Peter is up there in Antioch visiting the church, greeting the church, telling them all the good things that they're doing. Um, And uh, then these inspectors show up. So he says, before these inspectors came from James, verse 12, he was eating with the Gentiles, something that a Jewish person was not supposed to do. He was sitting down having table fellowship with, Jew, with Gentile people. Peter, a Jew, was doing that. He's not supposed to do that, according to the law. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas is Paul's spiritual father. He's the guy that put his arm around Paul after three years when he goes to Jerusalem that first time and develops Paul, and goes on these missionary journeys with the Apostle Paul. He loves Barnabas. Barnabas is my spiritual father. He's a senior pastor of this church. Paul's been raised up underneath of him. Um, So that even Barnabas is led astray. And Paul feels like, I'm just standing here on an island having to defend the truth. And Peter and and Barnabas are, are are the two that are standing in odds with me. Can you believe that? Um, So it says, I opposed him to his face. Uh, Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. So he not only he not only confronts Peter, he he doesn't just say, hey, Peter, look, um, let's let's go outside and have a conversation. And then maybe even got heated outside. I don't know. No, 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 no. I said to Peter in front of them all. So I, I, I brought up what's going on here in front of everybody, because what's happening here cannot stand. I don't want these people who are here to be left or be lulled into confusion about what the gospel is. I don't want it to be distorted in any way. And so Paul walks up to Peter, inspectors walk in the room. Let me kind of just walk this out here for a second. So it's Wednesday night church. We're all downstairs. We're having fellowship together around tables. There's Jewish and Gentile people in the room together. Um, And so the Jews when the inspectors walk in, Peter sees them. He gets up from table fellowship and just walks over to the corner and says, I don't know what's going on around here. I'm, these folks 
having some dinner together. I don't know what's happening. And the Jewish people, right, they're, they're clued into this. They know that Jewish people are not supposed to be having table fellowship with Gentiles. They do the same thing. They get up from the table as well, and they walk over here and say, I don't know what's going on. There's somebody having some dinner with some Gentiles. I don't know what that's all about. And so these Gentile people are sitting at the table going, I thought y'all liked us. And so there's a fracture that's taking place in the church right in front of Paul's eyes. He cannot allow this to stand. He walks up to Peter, perhaps sticks his finger in his chest. I mean, this is two pretty strong-willed guys, right, Paul and Peter. And so he sticks his finger in his chest in front of them all. And he says, I said to them, verse 14, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile. In other words, you're sitting down having table fellowship with Jewish people. I mean, you're acting like those laws of Moses, the ceremonial laws don't even exist. He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Why are you putting that yoke of slavery back on the necks of all of these people? And so he calls Peter out in front of everyone. All right, what about that revelation? What's the point of all this? Take a look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul says, says a lot of things, come to verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, when Wesley read those words, he read that the Apostle Paul, the old person that he used to be, has come to a place of maturity where that old person with his impatience and his hot-headedness and his, he's still got a little bit of that maybe, uh, but with, with his ability to react in ways that were unloving rather than ways that were understanding, that that guy, he says, has been crucified. He's dead. He's gone. He doesn't live anymore. And what's taken the place of him? I no longer live, but it's now Christ who lives in me, the person of Jesus. Let me kind of share, show you kind of what's going on here. Um, put it in our vernacular. Got another slide for you here, and this shows Galatians 2.20 and then kind of what Paul's describing here. So in, if we were to think of what, what, is a, what constitutes a good Christian in this area, right, in Georgia, um, we might say, well, that person serves as an usher at their local church. Maybe they visit people who are sick. Maybe they give to the church or to some local mission, missionary or something like that. Um, maybe they sing on Sunday morning or teach some classes, volunteer at their church or volunteer in the community somewhere. And that would be what we would think of as a good Christian. So I get justified, right? I start out this relationship with Jesus Christ, but then I, what, what's next? Well, you just, you start to play the part, right? You start to dress a certain way. You attend the right places. You go to the right studies. You volunteer. And then that's a Christian. Paul says, whoa, hold on just a second. That's a bunch of outward changes. What Christ is interested in is the change to the inner man. So let's take a look at what happens here. Our next slide. Paul says, I have that guy. I used to be that. I was Gamaliel's student. I was studying more than anybody else. I was doing everything. I was having, I was taking more sacrifices to the temple than anybody else. I was doing all the things I was supposed to be doing. That guy has been crucified with Christ and he no longer lives. But now, look at what's taken his place. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. You can go ahead to the next slide. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Verse 23. And self-control. Now let's put those back on our map. Because here's what Paul's saying. 
is that we have in our mind what a Christian's, what we're aiming for. Paul says that's, that's not what a Christian is. That's outward conformity. He says what Jesus really wants to do, what the Holy Spirit really wants to do, is to change the inner man, to change the inner woman, such that the old person you were gets crucified with Christ, and you no longer live, but Christ, Christ-likeness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, is what becomes the new you. Let's go back to our slide with the Apostle Paul, and we can see all this stuff all together on his journey here for just a second. I think, yeah, that's the one. All right. Uh, Brian and I were working this out ahead of time before church. I said, I might be throwing some stuff at you. So he's hanging in there with me. How long did this take for the Apostle Paul to get to this place of maturity? To be crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ now lives in me. Do the math. 17 years. 17 years. This was not something that happened overnight in Apostle Paul's life. It's a process, right? Sanctification. It's a process moving toward a point where eventually you do become mature. That you do become Christ-like. And Wesley argued and argued and argued that that can happen not just at glorification, but in this life. And here's Paul. Here's Paul saying, it happened to me too. Um. <clears throat> What difference does this make to your life and to mine? Um, I'll be very short. Um, what we're doing here, week in and week out, learning the scriptures, coming together for worship, um, it's building foundations in our lives, it's pushing the world out, it's being, being brought back to center, uh, back to center, right? <clears throat> but it's also a work of transformation. How marvelous it is to know that when I meet Jesus, he wants to take me on a journey to becoming the person I have always dreamed of being. And if I stick with him and I follow with him and I practice the spiritual gifts and I stay in his word and I stay connected with the local body of Christ and I pursue personal holiness, he can transform me into love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Dads, we need that. Husbands, we need that. Moms, we need that. To become love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control embodied to become like Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, thank you for just a fresh vision of what we're doing here. Thank you for a fresh vision of what maturity really is from a biblical perspective. God, we ask that you take the things which we have heard today, that you seal them in our hearts. That you would give us a goal for the coming year. That we would position ourselves with a heart of surrender. Lord, that we would position ourselves in weekly Bible studies. That we position ourselves quietly before you each day. Because we long to be transformed, to become like you. Jesus, we gather around this table now to be reminded of your broken body and of your shed blood, your grace 
that makes all of these things possible. For the same power of God that raised you, Jesus, from the dead can raise this body of flesh to live again for Christ. God, we give you these moments. Speak to our hearts, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.